Hello, listeners. I am David Blakesley, and this is episode 139 of the Criterion Reflections podcast. This is a program where I've been working my way chronologically through the Criterion Collection, starting in around 2009, as a matter of fact. <laughs> and we are very close to the end of season four of this podcast. Uh, it started as a blog, turned into a podcast back when we got to the year 1969, and we are here very close to wrapping up the year 1972. Uh, with Ingmar Bergman's Cries and Whispers. Got a really excellent uh, panel of guests. I've got to basically do a two-segment episode here. I've got uh, two guests today, and I'll be recording part two of this in a few days from now. Uh, so let me just welcome the guests, and I'll say a little bit more about the, uh, the episode and how we're going to go ahead and proceed. So first, let's welcome Derek Power. Derek, nice to have you back. Yes, uh, pleasure to be back. Yes, it's been a while since we've talked. I didn't even look up the last time that you and I got together. but uh, The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie. That was a good one. And this is one of those, uh, this here, Cries and Whispers, is another one of those kind of major art house sensations of 1972. So it's a nice pairing to have you back on this one. And then Brad McDermott. Brad, welcome back. Hey, it's good to be back. I have nice. my uh, glass of red wine here. I'm ready to do this. <laughs> okay, <laughs> color coordinated theme. It's it's all it's all ready and served right up. So, yeah, we are we are here to talk about uh, what turns out to be somewhat of a comeback, I would say, for Ingmar Bergman. He, uh, of course, had been a very productive, prolific, and celebrated director throughout the 1950s, especially the latter part of that decade, with his breakthroughs of uh, the Seventh Seal and Wild Strawberries. That kind of led to a discovery and a reappraisal of some of his earlier catalog. Of course, the 1960s were just kind of a legendary decade for him. But then towards the end of the 60s, um, you know, after he had kind of, you know, blazed new trails with his uh, kind of uh, Absence of God trilogy with uh, Through a Glass Darkly, Winter Light, The Silence, of course, you know, the, the mind-blowing, to this day, persona, and then some uh, other films that kind of followed up in that as he kind of made his uh, move to Faro Island and his kind of uh, sort of becoming an, an elder statesman of art house cinema. Films like Hour of the Wolf, Shame, The Passion of Anna, The Touch, uh, took a little bit of the luster seemingly, seemingly off of his reputation as he was continuing to strive for, you know, artistic breakthroughs. He made some experiments, uh, explored some... Uh, some avenues that he didn't really pursue, like The Touch, which I just mentioned, was uh, his only English-language film. He's, uh, he cast Elliot Gould, and it was kind of an attempt for him to maybe break into, you know, English-language filmmaking, working with major studios, Hollywood stars, etc. But it did not go well, or at least it did not sit well with him. I, I thought it was a decent movie, but he didn't seem quite primed to hit the same heights that uh, he had achieved earlier in the 1960s until cries and whispers came along and really reestablished him and and I would have, it, have even say that this film kind of established the reputation of Ingmar Bergman's films that almost lingers and persists to this day and I want to talk just a little bit of of trivia to kind of set the stage about how this film came to be released right there towards the end of 1972 uh, this is reading from his book, uh, The Magic Lantern, which is his autobiography. One of two, I guess the other one is Images, which really has more to do with the films and the the, the craft of movie making. But this here, he says that, that in, in The Magic Lantern, it turned out to be difficult to find an American distributor for Cries and Whispers. 
Paul Coner, my agent, a wily old trader, took a lot of trouble with no result. A well-known distributor turned to Coner after a screaming and yelled, I'll charge you for this damn screaming. (laughs) Didn't really, didn't really, uh, wasn't very impressed, didn't really care for it, didn't see that this film had commercial prospects. And, And we'll get into why that might have been. But in the end, a small firm specializing in horror films and soft porn took pity on us, <laughs> which he's talking about here. He doesn't mention them by name, but this is Roger Corman and American International Pictures. Right. Definitely a, a, a lower grade of distribution and kind of a little bit of slumming it on Bergman's part. Um, but, you know, he was he was at that stage of his career where he needed a little bit of a favor to get his film in wider distribution. And this is the interesting piece right here. There was a gap in one of New York's quality theaters. I think it was called Cinema One. A Visconti film had not been completed in time. And I looked into it. That had to be Ludwig, right? Uh, That was a film that came out in 1973. So the film had been reserved for that Visconti film, which is a pretty major epic in its own right. Yes. Oh, yeah. but, (laughs) But wasn't ready. And so there was an opening two days before Christmas Cries and Whispers had his world premiere. So in that one setting, uh, that one theatrical showing, got the film qualified for the Academy Awards the following year, where it won the uh, Academy Award for uh, Best Cinematography. I think that was a straight-up award, not even Best Foreign Language Cinematography, but Best Cinematography overall. Yep, in the category. The work, yeah, in that yep. category. So Sven Nyqvist, of course, a great collaborator with Bergman, kind of uh, took home the trophy there. And this film caused an amazing sensation it was really quite a quite a spectacle and i want to kind of hear what our guests think about it as we uh, delve into this uh, rousing and, and memorable and unforgettable comeback film cries and whispers so derek tell me a little bit about why you wanted to join me on this episode and talk about this film well i think uh, in the the criterion podcast social media circles i think i've earned a reputation as being the lukewarm appreciator of Igmar Bergman. Um, I have nothing but tremendous respect of, for him as a director, and there's several of his films that I like, but I would not call myself a super fan of him. He's not on my top five or even top ten list of directors. I was, mm-hmm. I was not as, ex- as excited as others were when the Igmar Bergman cinema box set was issued. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Back in 2018, um, but however, the the films I do like, uh, Cries and Whispers is is one of them. And I think, if I were to summarize it, uh, the films of his that I like have a kind of what I would call like a striking tonality to it. And mm-hmm. I think it's no coincidence that the films of his that I do like, Bergman would often use musical terms to describe. Uh, what he was going for or what he was, what he was about. Like for instance, through a glass darkly, he described it as, as a chamber piece. And I, I think in, I think he also used musical language in cries and whispers. And uh, I, I think that's what kind of struck me about it. It's just, it just has this uh, kind of raw emotion and psychology and intrigue. And it deals with, human interaction and the state of the soul and how do you deal with, well, in in this case, how do you deal with death and how do you deal with relations to other people and to yourself and and those kinds of uh, themes. And, and I, and, and it's done in a very, uh, in a dramatic yet subtle way. Um, 
and I, I think, and I tend to like later Bergman more than I, than I like early Bergman. Mm-hmm. And so, so yeah, I think there's, there's definitely a lot to see and digest from it. Yeah. Well, you know, your, your emphasis on the, on the musical uh, themes is especially uh, relevant here as I was kind of rehearsing, how was I going to introduce this film and kind of, uh, you know, get the conversation rolling. One of the phrases that came to my mind uh, earlier this week was, a symphony of suffering, <laughs> which I think is yep. a, pretty, a pretty apt description because that that both that musicality, but also just the way the whole thing is woven together. The, the, the flow of this film is impeccable and remarkable, and that's that's a big piece of what left such a lasting impression on me. Brad, go ahead and give us, give us some of your impressions and what drew you in to want to be part of this conversation. Um, well, I, I, I love Bergman, so I, I mean, I don't know if that if I would rank directors, I don't like ranking directors, but I definitely think he's one of the giants. So I might be different from Derek there a bit. Um, and, uh, <laughs> um, I, it's just another great Bergman film. I don't know. Like, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm just trying to, what else can you say? Like, he's just has this touch that he always has of mining, uh, spiritual, metaphysical, emotional, um, it just and make it so accessible that always just seemed to be for me what dazzled me about Bergman is that it never felt like a a struggle to access the deeper layers of his films and that puts him high on the mountaintop for me but I love Cries and Whispers because it like it visually I mean I'm a I'm a visual artist so I kind of approach these things through visual art and editing and that kind of thing and like this there's nothing else that it looks like this film like just the red like red mm. there's one word and it's red like <laughs> that it's all yes. yeah like like no one has used red like this no one has ever used red like this since and um it's you know it just became such a touch point for this film but there's other things um in it as well and what i really like is him sort of tearing down bourgeoisie we just talked we just mm-hmm. talked about the discrete charm of bourgeoisie that was the last yeah. time we were all together and like here you, here we are doing this again where mm-hmm. um these very like upper middle class like heavily protestant and these ideas of just uh, that just sort of makes everybody these cold assholes and mm-hmm. <laughs> which is um <laughs> which is sort of unhuman and and what I really gravitate towards is the the cracks of humanity that are trying to bleed, ha ha ha, red through right. through this film, so. um, at all times, only to probably be like you know sealed up, shut real quick um, as soon as somebody notices. Yeah, well, excellent. I really love both of your takes, and they really resonate with my own sort of impressions, both from the first viewing and then as I've kind of been sort of living with this film, revisiting it, uh, rewatching it a couple times, uh, watching the supplemental features, which, you know, some of them have a lot to do with in, on the Criterion uh, Blu-ray disc. Some of them have to do directly with this film, and there's that Erlen Josephson, Ingmar Bergman piece that was 
filmed pretty much towards the end of Bergman's life, but there are a couple of old men kind of reflecting back. Erlen Josephson plays a, a small role here as, as a doctor who has intimations of an affair with uh, the Leif Ullman character, Maria, uh, the youngest of the three sisters and, and the most gorgeous. And so you've got this really interesting, um, you know, reflections on on life and mortality and all the, on all the, uh, the brokenness of the relationships. In mm-hmm. fact, even Bergman and Josephson themselves talk about uh, their personal lives and, and the women and the relationships that they've had that have been broken up over the course of time and, and, and the pain and the anguish that, that they've gone through. And yet at the same time, they're kind of been there, done that. And, and they're kind of settling into old age with a little bit of a, a wistful rumination on, on what's, what's the sum total of it all. So this is, this is Bergman uh, working with kind of dream material. Uh, in fact, he's very candid about this and that these images, a lot of the, this red, the, the powerful images and the studies of the face and the hand and the touch and the expressions and the relationships really kind of come from this kind of deeper primal source within himself, within his own vision. Um, And there are scenes and, and I would even dare say mysteries here that he himself can't really, you know, explain or, or fully unpack. He's just kind of serving the images up there. The, the dialogue as sparse as it is, all very, very full of, of meaning and impact. And I think it is, it's that combination of the visual, uh, the, the sensory, just the, the whole thing, you know, the, the expressions on the faces and, and his very um, deliberate, you know, framing of, of the face and, and, and all the emotions that are expressed. Uh, he just has this really uncanny ability. And of course he, he did this throughout his whole career, but this really does seem to be one of the, superior showcases and and really one of the most dramatic um uses of color you know brad you've I've already mentioned the red but i really feel like uh his his uh chemistry with with sven nikvist here is is really you know almost um unparalleled you, you said brad that n- nobody ever used red like that i don't think anybody could use red like that and get away with it you right. know because right. it's just it's so epitomized but yeah i, I hear even I'm, like alchemal you could you can kind yeah. of describe it as mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah yeah so so derek you want to give us a summary what what's the story here what what's the action what's the setup that kind of gets all these pieces in motion okay so the the time and place is uh sweden in the the turn of the century, uh, by that I mean going from the 19th into the 20th, uh, it's we're in this house and it's <clears throat> three sisters and one of them is uh, named Agnes, uh, played by Harriet Anderson, uh, who is on the verge of dying. And uh, you find out in supplement stories that she actually has a uterine cancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and But anyways, and then the other two sisters, uh, Karen uh, played by Ingrid Tulit and uh, the younger one, Maria, it, Liv Ullman, are there to kind of be there for her in her final days or so. And then there's actually a fourth woman, uh, Anna, who's the housemaid for uh, Karen and her husband, Joseph. And so so in, in, in dispersed with that, there's, there's also... Uh, you know, as as she's dying, uh, there's there's two flashbacks you see for the other two sisters. Um, both of them 
deal kind of with their own sort of shortcomings and particularly in relation to their own husbands. And, you know, they don't, each of them don't deal with them in their respective ways. And this all kind of culminates towards the end when Agnes does finally die and that is kind of laid to bear. And then the other aspect um, involves Anna, who is probably, while she's not directly related to any of the sisters, she's the housemaid, uh, she ends up being kind of the closest to Agnes. Uh, you know, Agnes, uh, oftentimes she, she asks for touch and to, to be comforted. And Anna is the, is the only one that supplies that for her. And so there's this, there's this closeness mm-hmm. that they share. And uh, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Each character kind of has their own sort of trip down memory lane, if you will. And, and it's all takes place in this pretty sumptuous setting. I mean, it, it's a very nicely appointed manor house. The rooms are all painted in that kind of blood red, uh, crimson you know, red, crimson red. Yeah, but but I mean, intensely red. I mean, yes. the furnishings, the walls. I mean, uh, the, the women typically dress in white, and and that that image of women in white in a red room really is like the the nugget at the heart of this whole film. That was Bergman's dream vision that he had a, a persistent recurring dream. It appears. Um, that he couldn't oh, really explain. Go ahead. Uh, only red wine is allowed to be drink. <laughs> <laughs> to no be white. In this no white. Not even a rosé. Yeah, no, not no, even a rosé. No, no. <laughs> got to go for the full Cabernet or Zinfandel or whatever. You know, whatever they, they've got there. So yeah. So th- that that imagery is is really kind of at the key here. And the fade outs are into red. There's no there's no fades to black. No fades to white. It's it's all these studies in red um and also you know just the fact that they're they are as you said brad uh, living in a very privileged condition you know with with housemaids uh karen uh, the older sister her husband is a diplomat uh he's quite a few years older than her uh there's obviously a lot of bitterness uh, they they basically you know, it's, it's a, it's a marriage in appearance only, you know, she, she, they, they loathe each other. And there's, there's, there's two different scenes of, of, um, of Karen and her husband eating dinner together. There's another scene preceding that where it was, uh, Maria and, and her doctor lover, you know, who, with whom she has an affair, he's also sitting there eating fish. <laughs> They're both eating fish. <laughs> yep. And so there's some interesting sort of parallelisms, which again, brings us back to some of these musical motifs of kind yeah. of how these, you know, the, you know, the, uh, you know, the, these, these kind of ideas kind of parallel and echo each other over the course of the film. Brad, tell me some of some of the elements, like especially from the visual artistic point of view, that that kind of really stood out to you in that way. Um, <clears throat> I love the way how insular this house sounds, and mm-hmm. you talked about music, but music is used sort of very um, sparingly, and it mm-hmm. creates um, this almost kind of like uh, echo chamber empty very claustrophobic and like the the primary uh, sound other than people's voice is like tickings of clocks and rings of the chimes when mm-hmm. they strike hours right and yeah, that the passing of time right right yeah. exactly and and i think for me coupled with the just like i know we keep talking about the red but just the 
the complete saturation of this color um, creates the uh, another character, which is the mansion. Like it's it's kind of like if the mansion is sort of a specter of death. Um, it, it also is accompanied by these little whispers, right? Like we kind of hear them and sometimes yes. the women kind of recognize them and sometimes we're not sure that they yeah. recognize them. And it, like, it's not like a supernatural character. It's not that kind of thing, but it is adding just this, this light level of like surrealism to sort of represent that sort of specter of death that's looming throughout the entire thing. Yeah, I noticed that in the in the fade outs, there's that just it's a very almost subliminal kind of you can't make out any words. You just know that there's voices kind of mingled in the background right. there. And, and there's, very, there's one quick scene where Karen is when it's like her turn to watch Agnes and like she's like she's like, I can hear them. I can hear like and she's like. I'm not sure if she can hear them, could but they keep whispering, mm-hmm. and yeah. so like that's like is it, are the characters recognizing this as something or uh, or is this like a removed sound that like only and actually Anna hear? Anna is there and Anna responds with it's just the wind and the ticking of the clocks mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. right. So. But it, but they are all each kind of haunted by their past. You know, some of it's like the distant past with with Agnes. She's having sort of memories of herself as the kind of less favored child. She she sees her mother, uh, also played by Leave Ullman, in kind of more of like a black wig, so you can distinguish the characters. But but you know, the Maria character, the the young Liv Ullman uh, in this film, is kind of a the, the striking echo of her beautiful mother, and. Uh, Agnes, the Harriet Anderson character, as you see the three sisters as children, uh, is definitely the one on the outskirts there. She just doesn't seem to have that same sort of tenderness of response from her mother, except for one very memorable encounter where they really don't say a whole lot. They just basically give each other a good long look, and there's a very gentle but affirming touch. And in that moment, they felt close. But the fact that that moment stands out to Agnes's character in her memory as the one time that they were close, that says a lot right there. And I feel like it's that, that, that echoes that haunting of the past that is really kind of, you know, bearing the fruit that you see happening in, in the brokenness of the current relationships between these three sisters. Obviously, one of them, Agnes, is dying. She's a woman in her late 30s. So this is a very premature death by any measure um, from cancer. And, and there's a certain dread or fear because, uh, you know, she is she is suffering. And again, you, you got to give Harriet Anderson all the props because she really brings that, that misery and that deep heartfelt groaning right to the surface and Mm -hmm. to just lay there in that bed and you know there's Bergman calling the cue the cameras are rolling and she goes from asleep to awake noticing that something's not quite right in her body she's just trying to maybe shake it off or let it pass and then she's just seized up with agony and this happens on a few different occasions throughout the film and it's just I'm just I'm getting goosebumps here just thinking about what she had to summon up to to you know project all of that and and to convey that level of of agony so so convincingly that that you know you almost you know when we see uh Ingrid Tulin and and Liv Ullman re- recoiling in fear and and disgust and horror 
they weren't just acting that they were probably yeah. like, Whoa, Harriet, where are you coming from? <laughs> you know, that was, that was also yeah. directed by Bergman himself. Like he yeah. was, he was there mm-hmm. to kind of direct the way that she would breathe and mm-hmm. the sounds that she would give in her, like in her dying agony. So, yeah. Well, and I mean, again, Harriet Anderson, uh, really remarkable actor. So you, you have to think back to her meltdown at the end of, uh, through a glass darkly yep. mm-hmm. and even her, her performance in, uh, uh, somewhere with Monica there it was just she she really is you know quite quite a, an astonishing performer and, and I you know just have to give her all the respect in the world for what she did here so yeah so so we've we've got the the echoes of the past so what were you know let, who wants to talk a little bit about uh the Ingrid Tulin character let's let's analyze Karen a little bit there and and kind of figure out what's going on with her as the oldest sister, she's she's the tough one. She's the hardened one. Uh, who wants to kind of give her a little, you know, armchair treatment? There? <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, both of these sisters approach, they're like they're defined by their relationship to me. They're defined by their relationships to death. Um, and death is in front of them, right? Through Agnes. And Karen uh, is... Uh, attacks death like she's she seems to fight it and attack it deny it deny it yeah yeah she is the the sharp tongue and she uses a lot of really nasty teardowns to uh protect herself from feeling anything and um they're not so much focused on agnes because agnes is is dying but they're definitely focused on marie right her other sister yeah um uh, whenever she can get the chance. Um, and I mean, really focused on her husband who she can't stand. Um, so, uh, that he doesn't seem to have any affection for her either. No. Again, yeah. In the supplemental materials, you find out that this character has had several children, I think maybe five children. They're never really brought up on screen or, or alluded to, but she's a woman who probably married into prosperity. Maybe it was even an arranged marriage. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Uh, because he's, you know, and it's that, that era where a man, you know, 20 or 30 years older would, you know, reasonably be assumed to take, take a wife, you know, and, and, you know, do what he did. But the, the warmth and tenderness is, is long gone from that relationship. If it ever even existed. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so she's kind of hating her life, and yet there's no escape. There certainly was no ability for a woman of her station in life to, you know, to step out or to initiate a divorce. Um, she's not the type who's going to maybe have affairs as as Maria does, right? At least at least on one occasion. But and she just doesn't have that sensuality in her nature. She's a woman of of calculation and of of almost strategic sort of. Um, managing of her relationships but uh that's it's she's definitely paid a price for that she cannot stand to be touched she cannot really even allow intimacy go ahead right it's and and like what she does is the opposite is Mm self-harm right (laughs) yeah yeah let's let's go there (laughs) yeah i mean we're talking about karen we might as well go there like um she's a woman who self-sabotages so she doesn't have to confront her feelings and not only emotionally does she do that, but her body as well. Like mm-hmm. one of the most famous, it might be the most famous scene from this movie is when she mutilates herself 
um, as a way of spiting her husband, uh, like sexually spiting her husband, Mm -hmm. as in she would rather mutilate herself and bleed, feel pain, anguish, all of those things than uh, you think of a, you know, drop of pleasure for this man. Right. So, right. Um, so oh, like, and, and and also smear the blood across her face with a smile, her, which, with a right? smile. <laughs> which yeah. shows disgust because that's yeah. that's oh, another yeah. word she uses later. Is, yes, yeah. she's disgusted by him. Yes, and disgusted by death. And so when you she's uh, characterizes not being liked, uh, not liking people touching her, even her sister, um, and but she does like this kind of pain, like the opposite. If touch is supposed to be you know, something that soothes us, calms us, right? That lowers our blood pressure, all these things. Uh, another human being touching you is supposed to be good for you. I mean, it is good for you. not supposed to be. It is right, good for right, you. Right. Um, uh, what, what's good for her, what she wants, she's so poisoned inside that it's the opposite, where she wants pain and not mm-hmm. pain from another person, pain that she can fix on herself. Yeah, it's like so she has just come to hate, almost like hate life itself. Like yeah. they're just, you know, she's she's not willing to take the next step, which would be suicide. But you know, you wonder if that's somewhere down the road in her she, future. She, she entertains that. it, but she never, yeah. but she doesn't fully commit to it. Yeah, right. she says that in a confession to Marie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so a, a pretty a pretty dark character uh, again. I, I, all all the love and respect to Ingrid Tulin for bringing this character to life and you know summoning up something pretty pretty deep and twisted inside to to uh you know to, to bring that performance to the screen uh, again the, the fearlessness of, of of her and and Harriet Anderson in particular I think I think the Lee Volman performance is also pretty pretty stunning and pretty remarkable but perhaps not as risky in its own way but uh we want let's talk a little bit about maria i mean we we can kind of uh lay these characters out uh derek you want to kind of give a shot of what do you think about maria and her motivations and and uh where she travels over the course of this film so so taking a step back just a little bit uh in this recent viewing i can't help but think of the brothers karamazov Mm-hmm. And you could draw a parallel between, actually, between all four women with the the main characters in that novel. So in this, so in my thinking of it, Karen would be like Ivan, you know, more intellectual, more cold. You know, she would definitely be the Grand Inquisitor in this. Okay. I can I can easily see her that as that. Mm-hmm. Agnes would be Alyosha. Anna would be a kind of uh, Shmirakov uh, or Pavel, although except. She doesn't kill anybody. In fact, if anything, she's the opposite. You know, uh, but but then Maria is more like Dimitri, who is very romantic, very emotional. So her flashback uh, is she uh, the the family doctor is called in this uh, to help with Anna's daughter, and who ends up going on to die, like dies young, yeah. right? But this is like the presumably the beginning of whatever that fatal illness was Go ahead. right right so so after so after he takes care of her he says hey why don't you stick around for for dinner so so he's so so he's indulging and it, it turns out they've had this on off affair uh for quite a while and and this and this one night they just kind of return to that in fact one thing to to show contrast uh Karen is often dressed in black and like 
full body dress, you know, like basically like the, the only thing there, you see right. is her face yeah. and hands. Mm-hmm. Whereas Maria, she's dressed in red. It's a low cut dress. You can, you can, oh, yeah. you can see yeah. stuff. It's like, yeah, she's not hiding anything. So, well, in fact, it really very much is a seduction. I, th- I don't think the doctor had anything on his mind other than just taking care of medical. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So, so anyway, so, uh, but then what ends up happening is, is the next day, uh, her husband, Joachim, comes back and senses that there's this affair going on. And so he, so unlike Frederick, Karen's husband, who is quite spiteful and, and even contemptible, uh, Joachim, on the other hand, is quite passive and, and sort of resigned. And it's like, oh, why, why does this happen? And in fact, he excuses himself. Uh, he's, you know, he sees um, Maria's daughter and Maria and just kind of gives her some consolation and then leaves to the other room. And then, Maria discovers him attempting suicide. It, it's like a non-fatal knife stab. Right. Yeah. Uh, but in his he, gut, right. right. Yeah, in his gut. But nothing. But nothing to nothing to actually kill him. But, and he uh, kind of he, pathetically asks her help. Yes. Me. Yeah, yeah. Help me. Yeah. <laughs> which which is a in a sense his his weakness and and his pathetic you know being as she. She she doesn't hold him in active contempt, but she nor nor does she run to his rescue. Either. Definitely does she, not respect him. She retreats. Right, right. Yeah. And this this alludes to some deeper brokenness. Like they are closer together than a in age than Karen and her husband, so they they are compatible in that sense. They they've had a child, and 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 she very blithely tells him oh the doctor spent the night here because the weather was bad but he left this morning so there was never an an encounter with the doctor and in her sort of you know blithe and and carefree way of sort of acknowledging what happened so that she's not overtly lying to her husband or trying to act like you know the doctor was never there uh he touches her on the cheek and it's almost like there's this you know he can read her her inner right, yep. by that contact and that's what what kind of plunges him into this act of despair uh and and that is kind of her lingering memory the fact that she's married to a man that she no longer respects she does have this kind of sensual nature that uh, wants to you know perhaps explore or or partake of the forbidden fruit and it, that's a, something that in, in her station in society is, is very risky and not really looked uh, well upon. And even the doctor that she tries to resume that affair with, he really will have none of it. In fact, he, he tears her down. Brad, you want to talk a little bit about that scene where uh, the doctor is kind of having her look in the mirror and does a little bit of uh, analysis there? Yeah, I mean, I this is... Like this is a movie full of great close-ups, maybe one of the best films ever made about close-ups. Mm-hmm. Um, and this one is like the stunner for me is her looking in the mirror um, and and the doctor is talking about all of the ways her face has changed since the first time they met. So mm-hmm. this is under, uh, what I gather is that this affair has been happening for a long while. And, uh, and her, I gather that her husband is, this isn't the first time that her husband has been like, Oh, maybe you slept with the doctor. Like, I think that this is sort of like a, a secret. Here we go thing. again. Yeah. Right. Right. Here we go again. And like, this is, this depression has been accumulating, accumulating until eventually he wants to kill himself. But, right. but in this scene, when they're looking in the mirror, 
you see all of Liv Oldman's face and you just see the the mouth of Erlen Josephson right behind her. And it's almost like this disembodied mouth that keeps moving. And it just rhymes off all the faults on her face that have happened since the first time that they met. And it's and what I love is it's a, first of all, it's a, like it's a teardown. This is a movie full of like epic teardowns of people. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> but, Nobody does it like Bergman. I mean, you know, yeah. But like, um, it's uh, it's really thorough, and what that's what makes the insult so rich. Mm-hmm. Um, and but it's also Liv Ullman's expression as if this doesn't face her one day. Oh no, she, yes. she's almost yeah. reveling in it. Right. Yep. Right. And, right. I think that the the key for me for her is that uh, that she's kind of I mean opportunist like she wants what she wants when she wants it until she's bored with it and then mm-hmm. she doesn't want yeah. it and <laughs> she kind of consumes people a little bit and and not to make her you know seem like an awful human being but cuz she's not I don't think she's as destructive as Karen but like the doctor is just a means to please her and she can't really care about what he's saying. She just wants right like, physically, right? The, the doctor is a person who has the entry into her very sheltered domestic life. She can't just go meet some dude off the street or exactly. go down to the local bar and, and kind of <laughs> hook up with somebody, right? She's cloistered. I mean, so a doctor is a person who at least has an excuse to come through the front door and is a plausible, you know, guest in the house. So right. that may be right. the, the whole source of the attraction right there. And it's an, you know, it's an access to an affair, to, you know, a sexual fantasy, something mm-hmm. that she wants, right? And it, it's the same. I know this might jump forward a little bit in where we want to be, but like the in the last scene that she has with Karen where they both have their veils. Yeah. And then she turns coat, right? Like she was the one who wanted to uh, create a bridge with her sister uh, to bond, to heal that estrangement. And then she flips that on its head and like, oh, I don't want any of that. Like, because at that time when they were both terrified of death, confronting Agnes's death, right, right. they want that love and mutual uh, bonding uh, between sisters in order to help each other. But now that the funeral is over and, and we're back to, the this the same cold uh upper bourgeois living this that, is as usual right i don't need that anymore right so i yeah. i i love marie because uh her the the sort of nasty nature is more complex for me with her than it necessarily is with karen not that karen is like a, a lesser character um it's just that it's i feel it's a bit more complex and nuanced because she wears sort of different masks yeah, and I, I kind of feel like Maria was kind of making that pitch or that entreaty to Karen, you know, in the moment of crisis, and Karen was not as receptive to it as maybe Maria had hoped she would be. Uh, and then after a day or whatever has passed, and now Karen is like, well, perhaps there might be something there. Maria's like, oh, no, the moment's already gone. You know, you, you didn't meet me on my terms, so I'm not going to sort of let you steer the agenda here. I mean, it, it almost felt like she kind of, like you say, kind of flipped it on, on its head. It's like, well, I reached out to you then, but I'm not really ready to go there now. And it, right, it, you, you get the sense of this kind of 
kind of power negotiation. Now they are the two surviving sisters. Mm -hmm. They perhaps have rival claims to this estate. You know, that's a whole nother sort of speculative piece that takes place maybe after the, the film's action has, has run its course, but you know, they are, you're right. They're still in that upper bourgeois mentality of like, who's going to sort of uh, call the shots here in this, you know, fragmented and, and fractured family relationship. Uh, they're both unhappily married, but they've got to figure out what's the, what's the new path forward. Go ahead. Yeah, and, and they're, and then they like they 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 connect is so viciously like because mm-hmm. Karen is she's nasty but that nasty is obvious right mm-hmm. she's very obviously um, full of hate and anger and underneath all that is this incredible tenderness almost like a child learning f- like like yearning for a, a real emotional connection and she thinks right. she gets it in her sister. But she's not ready for the fact that her sister is more of a chameleon and mm-hmm. is really yeah. good at uh, showing, expressing that um, uh, uh, tenderness and making you think that it's real, even though it might not be. So they're they're kind of each other's like perfect poison. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a total yin yang kind of incompatibility right. going on there. Actually, I was I was thinking about it, and maybe this this might be jumping ahead, but the the moment where the two of them actually do touch, I, I think I described it as an ecstasy of touch. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the thoughts that came to my mind was, are they are they trying to bring balance to the force mm-hmm. between the two of them? Because <laughs> yeah, right, they both right. they both have their extremes, like they they go in their respective directions. And in that moment, it was it's like they're trying to. Rec- not necessarily reconcile well reconcile each other but maybe try to bring each other more to like less of an extreme you know maybe mm-hmm. maybe Karen will be less um cold and vengeful and maybe Maria would be more uh I guess devoted and and not feeling the need to exert herself to anyone and everyone that shows the least uh least bit of interest yeah, maybe just more sincere, you know. I mean, less or less, tempered, probably. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's a very interesting way they 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 depict that because they have all of this tension, and then when that kind of breakthrough comes, the dialogue drops out and the music takes over. You know, mm-hmm. and you, you yep. see their mouths moving. There's an exchange going on, and you can sense that the the emotions, at least for the moment, have have lifted and warmed up a bit. But again, you know whether that was by design where Bergman just didn't really have the words that he really could put into their mouths, or if he just wanted to let the music sort of be the expression right there as we're watching their faces. This is actually a good opportunity to go back to what I said about uh, talking about the musicality of it. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily the music itself, although in the scene that we're talking about, music definitely plays a role here. But if you're to look at the film and and take it in as an experience and also analyze it, it has some parallels to the way we analyze and, and experience music where you have this thing which conveys so many thoughts, emotions, ideas all at once. It's like this multivaried, multidimensional thing that is just this, this grand, <laughs> unexplainable thing that goes beyond words. And yeah. it's a film that, that achieves a level of musicality, not necessarily using music, but using elements that are like music so mm-hmm. but anyways but back to that scene what's what's worthy of note is the the piece that's used is Bach's 
Sarabande from his fifth cello suite, which apparently that is why the film Sarabande comes from. And, and I believe mm-hmm. that piece is used there as well. Uh, but what's interesting to note about that particular piece is in the entire collective of the cello suites, there are only five movements that consist of just a single melodic line. There are no chordal nodes or notes or moments where the cello plays two notes at the same time. But in this movement, there's just a single melodic line. Hmm. And I think that's kind of interesting that that piece is chosen to punctuate a moment of two people interacting, which you could interpret either as these are two people coming together or there's no connection at all. They're just kind of, they're just kind of going over each other's heads. Hmm. That's that's a great reference. Go ahead, Brad. And Bergman also shoots it as uh, this very even two shot. So both Mm -hmm. of the women are completely in profile. I can't remember if the camera pans back and forth a little bit or, um, or if it stays still, but um, usually in this film, there's there's a balance of, which face like when when there are two shots in this movie there's a balance of which which face is predominant and which is less depending on their position in the frame like when anna comforts agnes anna is a uh, more predominant in the frame and also mm-hmm. the the shot we had just talked about too about the the reflection in the mirror right what what kind of character does the doctor become when he's just a disembodied mouth but in this shot it is so equal that it's almost it's almost diplomatic it's equal and it's it's that idea of you know like you had mentioned Derek are these two women finally like is this the tete-a-tete like are we finally coming on an even playing field where both of these women can admit that they crave sisterly love with each other that have been denied by them through all of the various institutions that have, you know, pulled in demand from them. Um, and he visually expresses that with this very even uh, profile two shot. It's also interesting to point out, and I don't know, I don't think this is intended by Bergman, but it is worth pointing out that a Sauerbond is a, was a type of dance that actually started in Spain. And actually it, when it was done there, it involved castanets and an initial reaction to it is, oh, this is this is eliciting strong emotion. It's it's there's something kind of diabolic about it, and and it was it was quite tempered. But then um, then all of a sudden, and I forget exactly how this came about. It became of uh, a there were other composers which included Bach that used the Sarabande as a important dance in their own works, which is why you, you see a lot of Sarabans and of course through the cello suites and in a couple of other of box works as well. So I kind of take that as <clears throat> something that was initially seen as very primal and dirty, but then eventually gets elevated and even dare I say redeemed mm-hmm. to a, you know, a higher, probably more beautiful purpose. So Wonderful. I, I really appreciate your insight. Well, I, I want to kind of start to wrap things up a little bit, but before we do that, I, I, we do need to talk about the character of, of Anna, the servant woman. Yes. She's <laughs> yeah. not one of those yep. sisters. She she really is a 
pivotal character. In fact, I think she was the actress uh, featured on the original Criterion DVD release of this film, even though uh, Ingrid and, and Liv and, and uh, Harriet are all sort of more prominent in the firmament, if you will, of uh, Bergman's female actors. Uh, Kari Sylvan was her name, and I don't know if she ever did any other work with Bergman. Uh, but who wants to kind of give us a little breakdown? Uh, uh, Brad, I'll kind of kick it over to you. Uh, what are your thoughts about Anna? And I'll der- give Derek a chance to kind of weigh in as well. Um, well, Anna is the heart of this movie. Um, I watched this with my partner Fred yesterday, and we were both like, but, but like, Anna is the heart of this movie, right? I'm like, yeah, Anna is the heart of this Absolutely. movie. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, there's no, there's no movie without Anna. Um, uh, what I, so I love, so there's two things so one of them and i know you might talk about this a bit later with with uh dan um but like this sort of the queer identity that's happening between anna and agnes um and there's a little bit of it between the two other sisters as well but um we you t- you'd mentioned those flashback episodes uh those flashback scenes when Agnes is young and there's an othering right of Agnes mm-hmm. where she does not feel the same as her sisters and she doesn't have that same um, that same sort of code of femininity that her sisters have with her mom um, she doesn't respond to that the same way and um, it is and she was never married either she's she, a, yeah, been exactly. a single woman the whole she time was, right? she was never married it's just implied that she lived in that family manor painting watercolors forever and then and then <laughs> died right 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 and so um as she's been sick um anna has been taking care of her for over 12 years and there are two scenes we have with anna and Agnes, and both have very strong lesbian connotations, and both involve uh, Anna bearing her breasts in a way of uh, calming and consoling Agnes. One is near the beginning, um, when Agnes is still suffering, and she uh, and Agnes consoles. Uh, sorry, Anna consoles her in her chest to keep her warm again the the body touching right flesh on mm-hmm. flesh touching and, and, and how kisses good that is. and hair stroking yeah. i mean it's it's all the comforts right exactly and and anna is the opposite of the sisters all that that bourgeois sensibility that strong protestantism that just tears uh humanity away from people that is that is not what Anna has, despite being a woman who herself uh, suffered the loss of a child, right? Mm-hmm. Um, despite herself being also very Christian, she does not those those these institutions and like she's also the the servant class, right? She is right. a class below, but uh, the all these institutions have not turned away at Anna's humanity the way they have at the other sisters, and. Yeah. We come back to Anna at the very end. And the second thing I wanted to talk about, and then this is also alluded to the second scene with Agnes and Anna together, is is Anna's movement. You talked about music, Derek, and yep. we get three movements in this movie, right? Yep. Um, one for Marie, one for Karen, and then finally one for Anna. And Anna's is very different because Anna's is 
not a memory of her past uh, um though there are little things that you know that we talk about like the death of her daughter and that kind of thing but it is almost it is like a vision because at this point in the story agnes is dead but agnes still cries out um and we don't really see agnes's mouth move we just hear agnes and we just see the see anna's face responding to agnes and the and 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 we see tears down Agnes's face, right? So yep. she's still, but like, is she still crying? And so this third vision makes me think that, like, what is Anna seeing when Anna interacts with mm. Agnes? Mm. Because there, I think that you could make a reading of it that that all of their interactions maybe are visions from Anna's point of view. Maybe they weren't actually this level of intimacy wasn't actually real. Maybe it was. I think that that Bergman kind of suggests that based off of how strange this final vision is and the interaction with the two sisters, right? Where they're kind of interacting with Agnes, but is Agnes still alive and responding to them? Or is it's it- It's like she's in this kind of limbo. She, she's right, dead, exactly. but she can't fall asleep is how she puts it, right? And, right. Or is it just the sister's- responding to death again this mm-hmm. this kind of feels like the part where it's this uh, the specter of death agnes is dead but here we are like come with me ladies i'll teach you really about what death is and that's the most terrifying thing is mm-hmm. in this in this vision and it ends with an uh, you know uh, an homage to the pieta again yeah. with a bare-breasted anna consoling the body the the body of the departed Agnes. Um, so I, I just, because of all these reasons and more, the, she is, and the finale, we'll wait, let's wait till we get to the, like the final finale because I want to sure. talk about that too. But, sure. um, but yeah, for all those reasons and more, um, Anna is just the the beating heart of this movie. Derek, I'll let you follow up. What are your thoughts about Anna, her role and, and the meaning um, of the <laughs> So I, I, certainly she's the heart of the film. I would, I would even... I would say like between her and Agnes, they're kind of the soul of the film. And um, I kind of take Anna's uh, touching and consoling as much more maternal than sexual. I mean, I, I can understand why a, a sexual element can be construed from it, but <clears throat> so much of it, like the way, the way Agnes rests beside her in both times, it, it seems more maternal. And one addition that I thought of with, with um, Anna's dream is it could also reflect her own desire to reconnect with her own daughter, just the way that she acts towards her. It's almost, it's almost like uh, Agnes is a way of continuing that maternal instinct. So I kind of see her as more of, of the, like the kind of the surrogate mother the surrogate sister and yeah, to a certain extent, a surrogate lover as well. It's like, it's basically, she helps fulfill a lot of needs that Agnes had, but weren't being fulfilled by her sisters. And the fact that she was uh, alone, that she never married, you know, there was, there was no husband to insult her as well. Well, it it just feels like uh, they've both led a very lonely, isolated existence, you know, I mean, and very comfortable you know, at least material surroundings, this, this beautiful estate on a lake, you know, 
I'm sure all of the needs were met, you know, all the basic, uh, need, you know, requirements of life, you know, food, yeah. food, clothing, shelter, all of that. But, but the emotional piece was just not there. And so they, they made do with what they had and they found something warm and tender and beautiful and all of that until of course, Agnes's life was struck down by a, a, a horrific and, and, you know, painful, uh, life ending disease. So yeah, I, I I and I feel like again that that whole class distinction there, you know, uh, where is the love? Where is the fulfillment? Where is the even the just the, the reality of of facing life as it is on its own terms? You know, Anna's the one who's who, whose eyes are open. She doesn't flinch. She she certainly struggles with the difficulty of it all. Uh, she she hurts. She's experienced loss. She she knows that. Agnes's trajectory is is you know is very short and and terminal and 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 will be will be difficult but she will not shy away from that she will she will provide whatever comfort and consolation I will take care can. of her mm-hmm. yeah exactly uh, and and she sees the sisters kind of fail in that moment of of testing if you will and so you're right and and you know and she's also you know on a, just the physical level you know she's a, she's a plump woman you know she she's not the same you know gorgeous beauty that these uh, more aristocratic young women are or have been at earlier stages of their life you know anna's always been plain and 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 that's and and even the way she's treated at the end when after the funeral has taken place the husbands are there and they've got to figure out what to do with this servant woman and of course the the bitter old diplomat is just like she's young she's strong yeah just throw throw her to the wolves there exactly yeah like not not even a gift not even a token you know um and and uh you know you, you just sort of see some of that upper class snobbery going on there so, so Brad, you wanted to get to the the final conclusion, which is the scene of the the sisters walking in the autumnal setting in their beautiful white gowns. Anna, the servant, off to the side, but still part of the company. Is that kind of what you were thinking of as far as the uh, the, the wrap up to the film? Yeah, I just wanted to uh, just comment on. I mean, this might be self-obvious. I, I don't know. But like I what I love about this finale is the the key to happiness uh, mm-hmm. for me. And uh, so in that scene you just mentioned with all the husbands and the sisters there deciding what to do with Anna, they ask her um, as like, you know, do you want one thing like this is their grand? Memento, right, yes, right. their grand gesture of taking care of Anna is like, well, she spent 12 years with Agnes. I guess we should give her something like, right. right? <laughs> it gets so, and so Anna says no, but later in the very final scene in present day, Agnes, uh, so Anna has Agnes's diary. So right. I'm, I'm guessing the input and, and it's in, it's in Anna's apartment. She has a little servant, room where she sleeps and stays right so that that is the thing she has taken probably under her own terms without actually asking Asking permission exactly exactly unbeknownst to the sisters and their husbands she this is the thing that she says is mine and she reads the passage which is what you described um so it is a flashback as to a moment in agnes's illness when she was feeling really healthy and her sisters were there and the the three sisters plus anna 
are dressed in white and are strolling outside the manor um, and reach arrive at a swing that they have not swung on since they were all little girls, right? So, right. and uh, the line Agnes reads is how perfect of a day this is that like, if this is the only perfect day, let me keep this in my mind forever for this is something along those lines. This is the day that, that I'll remember. And mm-hmm. for me, what, what I think is so profound is that this, this is the secret to happiness, right? Is, mm-hmm. is just knowing this, knowing that you have the capability of just claiming something as happy for yourself of mm-hmm. being happy on your uh and deciding that you are going to be happy despite the fact that you're going through an illness like agnes was still sick during this time she decided she's going to be happy she decided this is the moment she's going to keep and then by anna taking this book she has that key to happiness mm-hmm. now whatever happens in anna's life she knows that she herself can do have a moment like this in her life because Agnes wrote it down and Agnes made prove that that was possible. Yep. And those other two sisters will never know that. And yeah. they need to know that to find yeah. happiness, but they never will. Um, mm. And I, I love that, that irony. I just think that that is for me um, the, the sort of, feather on the cap of this movie um and it's yep. the thing that moves me the most about it for sure and even and even reading those words kind of brings agnes back to life for a moment if you yep. will you're, you're kind of yep. capturing and expressing that contentment that peace that she found it was it, a it yeah. bookends it bookends and bookends the movie like the movie starts yeah. with agnes writing uh today is monday and i am in pain and <laughs> in that diary yeah. and it ends yeah. once again yeah. with the same diary Yep, it reminded me of the uh, the strawberries and cream scene at the uh, towards the end of uh, the seventh seal again mm-hmm. with that moment of contentment and perfection, even though you know doom is around the corner. We're going to hold on to this moment uh, for all it's worth. Absolutely. And, and speaking of, speaking of bookends, the film starts with the title "Cries and Whispers," and at the very end, the last mm-hmm. intertitle is, "and and then the cries and whispers became silent." Yeah. And that's the end. That is yep. absolutely yeah. it. No, no final credits. No, uh, no blooper reel. <laughs> no <laughs> no post credit scene. <laughs> no. Which is probably a, a really fine note for us to wrap up on. Uh, so yeah, I, I think we're all we're all pretty well in agreement that uh, we're, we're all very big fans of this film. Very impressed. Very moved by it. Um, is there any anything that you want to say as far as critical takes or comments? Uh, I mean, this is a film that does have its detractors. In fact, the, the follow-up uh, segment may get a little bit more into the, some of the critical discourse. I mean, this is a film that uh, maybe to preview a little bit about where we may go, some some feminist film critics have felt, you know, not exactly satisfied by Bergman's portrayal of women. Uh, are these real characters or these ideals? You know, Pauline Kael wrote a, a very yeah. brilliant review, which is, you know, acknowledging many of the film's impressive accomplishments, but also taking it down a notch because of what she saw as kind of over the top um aspects of of Bergman's kind of manifesting some of his inner hangups onto the screen and and wanting to you know maybe draw a little bit of a distinction between real life and some of these kind of archetypal idealized female characters all of which could be said to represent 
in some ways negative stereotypes or or expectations that women somehow sh- are are supposed to live into especially in the in the honor role the, the the servant you know and all of that um and maybe we'll unpack some of those but i just kind of wanted to see if you guys have any thoughts along those lines uh where does this film rank as far as uh, a, a pattern or a or a uh, a role model for for how life should be lived. I, I think we've touched on some of the really beautiful aspects of the film, but is there a, a, a downside or another angle to to look at this from? Um, uh, so there's always like an argument both sides for sure. me. Um, like like and Fred and I talked about this. Is there a male gaziness about this film? Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and. Uh, his his main issue he had was the su- sort of the lesbian suggestions between Marie and, Ka- and Karen, like when they are bonding. Mm-hmm. Um, is this is this like would it make sense for an incestuous lesbian sort of feelings? Right? Mm-hmm. Are are is is that what Bergman is suggesting, or is he being overt about that, or is he and and his main thing is like, is that really believable? And right. so there is sort of that element that you can look at it and and at from that from that side, is this a bit more like what what does Bergman really know about queer identity, right? Like where would he have access to queer culture? Uh, not really like it doesn't seem like he was really studying that it mm-hmm. does and you know the silence has this kind of thing as well like right is or even really, persona you know some yeah, of the ways persona. that he's putting the women's faces in close proximity i mean in some ways he's he's sort of playing a bit of a game or he's he's serving up sort of imagery that he knows certain parts of his audience will just eat up because it is, it's so riveting. It's so striking, you know, but is it manipulative at a certain level? Right. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the other side though, is this, is this a defense? Like, is this an argument? Is, Ber- is Bergman attacking sort of the ideas of what women were expected to live, how they were expected mm-hmm. to live? Yeah. Um, the limited like, options of the women limited, in the 19th exactly. century. Right, right. So is it, is the other side that it's kind of feminist and I know that's loaded to say, but it's, it, <laughs> yeah. but is he actually, is he actually critiquing and accusing using this film to attack and, and critique these things that people are accusing him of doing? Is this him saying, you know, women should be free to express their emotions towards each other the way Agnes and Anna did despite their class differences despite you know agnes not marrying some rich dude right like right uh, despite that they might be lesbians right mm-hmm. like should they be allowed to be themselves and free themselves of these these con you know strict social regimented uh institutions which are very um you know patriarchal which are very misogynistic right like oh, class yeah. structures based in men being on top and women had no options unless they married a rich dude and like you know religion was based on men dictating what this belief system is and expecting mm-hmm. women to follow it so and both of those are present you know we have that great scene with the priest in this movie oh where yeah. he just sort right. of like lines out all <laughs> protestantism <laughs> for you so you get the picture right so yeah, yeah like, I, I i would love to see a, 
a, a pastor speak that candidly at a funeral of any this <laughs> <laughs> is really laid out there well derek i'll give you a chance to kind of follow up on that before we uh, wind things down here i think in general like whenever i hear about you know, this film falls short on this. Uh, I think the best response I can give is actually what Godard said, which is the best, the best film criticism you can make is to make your own film. Uh, if you think, <laughs> if, you, you, if you think that something doesn't reflect a certain experience for what, or doesn't express your view, you know, you can, you can kind of make, you can make your own. And, and in fact, that's, that to me is what's beautiful about cinema is that, is that because it, it gives someone else the ability to see how you see things. And this is where empathy begins um, just, just by kind of seeing the world through somebody else's eyes. And, and I think, I think um, in the case of this, I think it's unfair to put the burden of every artist to explain every single possibility. Sure. Uh, But I, I think, I think in, in this film and, and I also believe that cinema exists as a pantheon. There's no one film that can define everything. Right. Just like right. in music, there's not one piece of music that can define everything. But there's certainly a lot that can be extrapolated from it for sure. And I think there are, there are things that Bergman did say through Cries and Whispers, and there are some things that he probably didn't intend to say that could be construed as well. And, and the, I think this is why we enjoy watching films and talking about it. So. Excellent. Well, I think that's a pretty good note to, to wrap up this segment on. So we'll have a little uh, interlude music. Perhaps I'll play that uh, Sarabande to transition us into the next segment there. But, but Brad and Derek, what a blast it's been having you on and really uh, enjoy your contributions and thoughts. And uh, we'll do it again somewhere down the road. Definitely. Pleasure as always. All right. Thanks a lot, guys. Talk to you soon. Okay, listeners, welcome back. This is the uh, second segment of this discussion about Cries and Whispers, and I'm very delighted to have a couple guests, one of whom has been on the podcast a couple times, Dan Humphrey. Dan, hello, and welcome back. Hi, glad to be back. It's always a intellectually and cinematically stimulating conversation. Here. Well, I feel very much the same. And Dan, I have to say, you recommended our next guest, uh, James Bogdansky. Uh, tell us just a little bit about what led you to uh, connect you and me and James uh, to have this conversation. Well, in short, this is a discussion on Cries and Whispers, and he uh, has been writing an essay on Cries and Whispers for a uh, book that I'm co-editing that's going to be one of those monster volumes that only libraries buy because it's so expensive (laughs) uh, that will have 33 essays by 33 different scholars on some aspect of Ingmar Bergman's studies. It's going to be called uh, A Companion to Ingmar Bergman by uh, the publishing house Wiley Blackwell. And James uh actually was with me last summer at uh, Bergman Week on Fora, where mm. uh, the mm. two of us and another scholar, 
D.A. Williams, Williams, D.A. Miller uh, of Berkeley uh, presented our our kind of current analyses of Bergman. And when you said you're doing cries and whispers, I thought, you know, who better than someone who's been eating, drinking, and <laughs> sleeping cries and whispers for the last year working on this study. Well, and just to kind of maybe fill listeners in, you're a professor at Texas A&M University down there in College Station, correct? Yes. That's right. Well, good. Well, I really appreciate your perspective. So let's go ahead and get introduced James. James, welcome to Criterion Reflections. I'm really happy to have you on. And I just want to give you an opportunity to introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about your work, and then we'll get the conversation rolling. Great. It's a pleasure to be here, David. I, I appreciate the opportunity. Um, I teach film studies uh, in Southern California at uh, two colleges. I'm at uh, Long Beach City College and uh, El Camino College, which is just south of L.A. Um, and my chapter on Cries and Whispers for um, the, the Wiley Blackwell collection uh, focuses a lot on the female Gothic and how that literary tradition really informs Berkman's uh, aims in the film, especially his treatment of the the four women characters. Um, and in particular, I focus on uh, the absent mother figure, um, who in the female Gothic is is traditionally this um, figure of uh, menace that that lingers over the whole plot. Um, and the the female protagonists usually have to uh, grapple with with the absent or dead mother um, in order to assert their own. Uh, personhood or, or subjectivity. And I, I feel like that's a, a very present uh, theme in the film itself. Definitely. That's uh, Leave Ullman in the black wig we're talking about here, right? Yes, right. She <laughs> plays both roles, right? One of the daughters and the mother. Yeah, and, and with the Agnes character, uh, the, of course, this is the Harriet Anderson, the woman who's dying of cancer, uh, much too young, you know, 37 years old, I think is what we get in the in, in the treatment um she's the one who seems to have the most estranged relationship with her mother so i want to give you a chance to unpack that thesis a little bit more and let's kind of you know kind of take it and branch out from there certainly um yes that's that's the first uh introduction we received to the mother is, is agnes's memory her childhood memory um of her at various events uh wandering aimlessly through the the, the grounds of the family estate um and I, I do look at um, a concept that I won't unpack it too much because it is pretty theoretically dense, but this concept known as the abject, uh, and particularly the, the uh, French feminist Julia Kristeva's treatment of the abject. Um, and it, it pertains to any uh, mother-child bond, but in this case, it's obviously the mother-daughter bond. Um, and it can involve the uh, separation that occurs right when a child is born and they need to assert their independence from from the mother and there's always this tension um, throughout their early years um, that this this fear uh, of potentially being reincorporated into the the figure of the mother. Um, so what's interesting, I think, in Agnes's case is she is yearning actually for this connection, which is pretty absent uh, according to to her accounting. Um, and uh, one interesting note I, I uncovered in my research uh, is that in the screenplay uh, for the flashback where she's in the parlor and uh, she has that really intimate moment with her mother uh, and touches her mother's face, the, uh, the mother in the screenplay, um, she actually interrupts this, this really touching moment by telling Agnes that her hands are dirty 
Um, and dirt can also be uh, uh, signifying the abjection, something that's abject or unclean. Um, so I, I thought that was uh, uh, pretty telling that Bergman chose to actually um, excise that moment from from the film, where what we what we see is actually um, the the one cherished memory that that Agnes presents to us involving her mother. Hmm. Yeah, and and I I. I my understanding of Bergman's method is that he wrote this, it's really not even a screenplay. It's really kind of a story, a treatment that he circulated among the, the actors, uh, the women that were going to be cast in the film. And that once you got the film crew in place and in motion, uh, then you would modify the, the script and, and the parts and the, the, the production would take on a little bit of a life of its own. Dan, let me kind of hear from you a little bit about some of your own understanding of, of how this kind of film project came together and, and, you know, maybe just play off a little bit of, of the presentation here about the sort of the, the mother daughter conflicts that are at the heart of this film, or at least one of the key, you know, background motifs that are happening as a lot of the film really revolves around the relationships between the three sisters and of course the servant Anna. Sure. I'm thinking suddenly of a quotation. I'm certainly not going to get this word for word, but it uh, is Bergman saying somewhere that of all the relationships in the world, the most mysterious is that between a mother and a daughter. Hmm. And I don't know what context in which he said that. Uh, I think it was used as part of the tagline for another uh, kind of highly wrought, very painful mother-daughter relationship in Bergman's cinema, that in Autumn Sonata, Mm -hmm. uh, where uh, you have Lee Volman yet again... uh, and this time she's only playing the daughter, uh, but Ingrid Bergman plays the mother. That's a pretty and, formidable pairing right there. <laughs> yes. Correct. And, of course, in both cases, Cries and Whispers and Autumn Sonata, you had a lot of people, uh, mostly women, uh, understandably enough, uh, criticizing the films from the perspective that Bergman as a man is actually projecting a lot of his own baggage onto mm-hmm. uh, you know, this kind of dynamic uh, that he posits exists between a mother and a daughter. Mm-hmm. So there is this sense that, you know, what, what does he know about this very intimate bond as a man? And if you look at the latter film, and I know we're not talking about that, but if you look at Autumn Sonata, a lot of people have pointed out that the Ingrid Bergman character, the mother, is clearly Bergman, but he was unwilling to really cast the role uh, as a male character. Hmm. And as a result, you have a film that, you know, every kind of liberated woman I've ever talked to really who sees that film hates it because they say uh, the film is demonizing women who try to have any sort of life outside of being an active full-time mother. Hmm. Uh, But in reality, you know, Bergman was kind of working through his issues 
as a father who was never really there for his children and the guilt he felt about that. And, you know, what he knew to be was, uh, was some resentment from his children for never being there for them. And he had quite a few children. The number escapes me, but it seems like it was like, what, seven, eight, nine, something like that. I want to say nine. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Through multiple women and and wives. Right. right? Mm -hmm. Uh, so, but for me, you know, and I talk about that in my book on Bergman, you know, one of the interesting things about Bergman is the way in which you're seeing films imagining what it is to be a woman from a male perspective. And, you know, from one perspective, that's kind of simple misogyny, you know, like men trying to co-opt women's experience and, uh, you know, colonize it as you know, something fitting the kind of the perspective of a patriarchal man, mm-hmm. man. But, you know, for me, and kind of looking at it from kind of a queer perspective, you know, you're seeing something much more complicated. You know, you're seeing men imagining the woman within themselves in some senses mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. looking at these films. And so then these these films, especially the 70s ones, like, Cries and Whispers and Face to Face and Autumn Sonata, you know, they, they become more interesting in that, you know, it's men or a man, Ingmar Bergman, grappling with, with uh, a femininity that, that is not ultimately kind of essential to the biological person, but is is a sign that we all have some understanding of as conscious human beings. And so even men have femininity within them, oftentimes disavowed, oftentimes buried or ignored. And, you know, to me, this film, which a lot of critics, and again, a lot of feminist critics saw this and criticized it, you know, it's a film very much attempting to kind of peer into the soul of the female uh, uh, full stop, the soul of the female Mm -hmm. or the female mindset. And he he says in another interview, Bergman, that he always believed uh, from childhood that the color of the soul was red. (laughs) <laughs> and yeah, and this yeah. movie is just red on red on red, right? It oh, doesn't yeah. have fades to black. It have, has fades to red. All, all the, the paint on all the walls in the manor is red paint. You know, they wear yes. red clothes. To paraphrase Spinal Tap, none redder, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 you know, and here's the thing. Bergman is a filmmaker of, I, I believe, exquisite artistic sensibility and, and talent. And, he, and he's a male director in a age of sort of patriarchal presumption and assumptions who's willing to say okay let's really look at the the condition of women let's consider the female psyche rather than use them just as ornaments although i think you could also say that bergman was very conscious of the fact that he typically cast 
very beautiful women as as far as conventional tastes are concerned and that there was an attraction there was a box office draw by putting bb anderson and lee volman and ingrid tulin and uh, gunnel lindblom and others you know uh, up on screen because they're they're gorgeous um so so i give him credit for tackling territory and or for making films that are incredibly well crafted and this is this is one of them this is a stunning visual and 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 achievement on the aesthetics uh but you're right there there is sort of that emerging sort of idea that women should not be confined to or presumed to be you know cast into these roles james i want to kind of give you a chance to maybe respond to some of what daniel said or just this idea that you know bergman's putting together what i think is a very impressive film Although perhaps there's some blind spots that we need to kind of wrestle with before we say, here's a guy who really understands what it's like to be a woman. Well, in rewatching the film, and I actually uh, reread Daniel's book on Bergman, Queering Bergman, or Queer Bergman, um, and I believe, Dan, you make this point uh, about how Bergman has his uh, predispositions as a filmmaker, but in all of his films, what comes across often is the unsustainability of, of these patriarchal systems, right? There's always some inherent criticism of the world that he's, he's presenting. Um, and that stood out to me in, in rewatching the film. Um, I know Constance Fenley really takes it to task for its depiction of, of the, the women. Um, but I, I feel like Bergman at certain points in the film takes a very clinical eye um, to not only the female characters, but the male characters. Uh, and one scene that really stood out to me, this previous viewing was um, the meeting between Maria and the doctor. And when she's trying to rekindle their affair, um, he has the camera uh, looking at the doctor in profile as he's eating. And he, he just does not stop to take a breath. He is this very gluttonous um uh, spectacle where he's just uh, gulping down wine and, and putting piece after piece of food in his mouth. Uh, so, so there's something very unappealing about all of these male figures, uh, very venal. Um, and and there's also the the absence of the father figure who's never mentioned at all. Uh, it's only the mother, right, who who gets the the um, the honor of of sorts of of actually appearing in flashback. Um, so I, I think that there is something. There's there's an equal opportunity um, critique on, underfoot here, even if the, the the female characters are overrepresented in in some sense. Well, absolutely, you know, and the men in this film are, I mean, almost to an individual, just completely pathetic, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it's not just David. It's not just the doctor who's had the affair with uh, Maria. The daughter character played by Lee Volman, but it's uh, Karen's husband, too, uh, in the scene where he's eating dinner with her, and he's just shoveling the food in his mouth, too. First, I thought you were getting the two characters mixed up, and then I thought, no, they both do it. Yeah, yes. they, <laughs> they both have these dinner scenes where they're just <laughs> shoveling food in their mouths. And so there is this sense that, you know, the men are you know, just kind of appetite and hunger and, you know, kind of gluttonous animal. And it's the women who, you know, are much more complicated. 
And initially, you know, Bergman was praised for being kind of the greatest, you know, male spokesperson for kind of a woman's point of view in kind of, you know, in at least in the art cinema, right? Molly Haskell, who wrote that kind of foundational book on women in film called From Reverence to Rape, you know, she actually points out that, you know, 30s and 40s Hollywood films uh, as problematic as they were for, you know, uh, presenting women in this kind of exalted state as these kind of perfect creatures played by Greta Garbo and Ingrid Bergman. You know, by the 1970s, when you have women's liberation and much more uh, complex characters played by strong actresses such as Jane Fonda, that you know the backlash inherent there is that you know these characters are being sexually assaulted in all these movies mm-hmm. you know of the 1970s so so you know it's kind of a, a a critique of the current then current situation for women in films this was the early 70s but she spends a whole page talking about how wonderful bergman is and and so I don't think we should forget that. You know, she says these are complicated characters uh, who are intelligent and you know, exercise agency. Uh, I should have found my copy of the book on my bookshelf and had it open to that page. I could read it right now. But but so I think a lot of people to this day who who are women love Bergman. They don't necessarily take this position that was very popular in the 1970s and kind of triggered by cries and whispers that, you know, that the Bergman is kind of almost creepily obsessed with women as Hmm. some of them (laughs) suggested. Hmm. And so, you know, on the one hand, I think you have to take it on a case by case basis. You know, if you think cries and whispers goes a little too far in some sort of morbid direction, you know, that doesn't necessarily invalidate persona or shame or mm-hmm. wild strawberries or the silence. And then also, you know, a woman's going to have a very different reaction to cries and whispers than a man and a lesbian from a, you know, a, a, a heterosexual woman, mm-hmm. a gay man from a straight man. And, and there are a lot of women who love cries and whispers. Uh, I think uh, Catherine Brie, or maybe it's uh, uh, Claire Denis. Like a lot of the French feminist filmmakers love cries and whispers, and it's interesting because they're a lot of really tough-minded women who mm-hmm. would have probably read. Uh, I'm blanking out. Julia Kristeva that uh, that James mm-hmm. was just talking about, you know, mm-hmm. who was in, in her own way a feminist, but also a feminist that kind of, you know, frightened the horses, so to speak, <laughs> in more mainstream second wave feminism with, you know, some fairly radical takes on, on uh, psychoanalysis and so on. So you can look at these films from multiple perspectives, and I think that's what's interesting, and that's why I was so excited to have James join the anthology when he started talking about it, because, you know, looking at it as a female gothic, which 
seems obvious if you watch the film, but I don't think anyone, I, I haven't read anything in English. And that gives you a new perspective too. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, Pauline Kale seemed to have her finger on this pretty quickly. I mean, her, her review was based on the original screenings, I think in New York at the end of, end of December, 1972. And, you know, and she, she acknowledged both the aesthetic accomplishments of the film and, you know, the impressive acting and the, you know, the, the fearless performances, but also, that these women were very very stereotypical and objectified in this kind of you know highly idealized way and i and i do wonder for you know some of those tough-minded women that you cited um dan you know are they are they impressed by the meatiness of the roles i mean these are you know this is a very female-centric film the women even you know, as unlikable as they may be because of some of their character flaws. I'm thinking of Ingrid Tulin, uh, her, her role as, as, um, as Karen, you know, she's not very sympathetic as a character, but my goodness, what a performance she gives. And, and there is, there are women who, you know, their life experiences has molded them into that type of a personality. You know, uh, they, they do have resentments. They do bear grudges. They have been wounded by, by the circumstances of their life. And there's not really a, an easy escape from all of that. So I, I can see women relating to these characters. Like, yeah, I've, I've been there or I, I know what they're, where they're coming from. Uh, exactly. Yeah. The scene that, a lot of women I know who are old enough to have seen this movie when it first came out, uh, you know, and probably only saw it, you know, as, as very young women because it, you know, it was 1972. It was a long time ago. Mm-hmm. So we're talking older women you know, they talk about, you know, it's been 45 years or 50 years now. I still have not gotten over the scene where Ingrid Tulin mutilates her own genitals with the shard of glass. And I like, they'll practically yell at me, you know, yeah. like you're, you're not showing this movie to your students. Are you? Uh, and it is a, a pretty upsetting scene. Although I would say, you know, if you look at films from that era, there's a lot more objectionable material out there in terms oh, yeah. of violence <laughs> toward women, mm-hmm. such as straw dogs and a clockwork orange and so forth. But, you know, I was talking to my colleague Hamish Ford, who's co-editing the Bergman Anthology with me, and we agree that, in a way, that's like a boss move on that character's part, on Karen's part. You know, she is so much stronger than her own husband that she will cut her own genitals because she does not want him to force himself on her in the bedroom yet again Mm -hmm. in an era when... You know, legally, you know, he could have raped her and not been prosecuted for rape because you can't rape your own property. And a woman was basically, you know, you can't steal your own property and a woman was basically property. So the only way she can, like, you know, rebuff him is to, like, cut her genitals, bleed on her hand and rub it on her face. Yeah. And in a way, yeah, in a way you're like, holy crap this is a strong woman, right? And, and and I noticed this again tonight. I've noticed it the last couple of times I've seen it. You know, you finally are able to see this movie in high definition. You know, for years, I'd only seen it 
on VHS, you know, maybe mm. DVD. I saw a really dupey 16 millimeter print once. <laughs> you know, as the scene as the scene goes on, I'm not quite sure how they affected this, but when the camera pans back up to her face, it's suddenly bathed in perspiration. Yeah. And as you know, like when you have sudden strong pain, sometimes you just break out into a sweat, right? Mm-hmm. And the ver- so the verisimilitude of this scene is just breathtaking. Yeah, you and, wonder, did she really go there? Like in real well, life? Well, <laughs> I'm not going to. Well, no, but, but I mean, it's it's convinced, it's 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 riveting uh, that that moment, right? Yeah. And you know, rather than be some sort of like, oh my god, women are horrible, you know, it's like Bergman is to me, he's attesting to the kind of awe inspire awe inspiring strength that women can have, mm-hmm. you know, that she can mm-hmm. do this, just kind of go, you know, f you, I'm not let <laughs> I'm not letting you screw me tonight. Well, you, know, you, you, you want to do it now? You want to come into all this blood? <laughs> and that's the kind of thing I, uh, Catherine Brier would have just loved, right? Some sure. of these Absolutely. French feminists. So, you know, it's, it's very impressive in a lot of ways. Uh, and just the craftsmanship, as you were saying, David, you know, I have never seen makeup on someone that is that seems as accurate as Agnes's chapped lips. Oh, right. <laughs> You know, like you mm-hmm. think movies are this multi-million dollar business with this awe-inspiring technology, and, and yet you're still, you know, used to kind of, you know, bad makeup in terms of things like chapped lips, and you just let it go. I was like, you know, like you're wondering, you know, did, you know, did she, you know, do something horrible to her lips, you know, to get them to just be chapped all those days? Because that looks better than any makeup I've ever seen trying to mm-hmm. achieve that look. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, I mean, I think good people can disagree, and I don't want to, you know, mansplain away the problems <laughs> women have with this film. Yeah, yeah. But, but there is another way to look at it, uh, uh, where it's like these women are incredibly strong, and and Bergman isn't investigating the mystery that is woman; he's investigating the mystery that is femininity. Right. And if you believe that that's kind of a, you know, a social construct created in a patriarchal ideology, then, you know, it's not this kind of stigmatizing, demonizing of women move. Right. Their experiences have shaped who they've become under the different pressures. Right. He has this amazing interview. It was actually on the Dick Cavett show where people where Dick Cavett asked him, you know, why do you uh, focus so much on women? You know, why do you have so many women? And he's had different answers to that question, but he said, uh, basically, female actors give better performances because by education, uh, women are molded to be able to be more emotionally open than men are. And that makes them better actors. Mm. And, and this phrase, by education, so he's not speaking in his native tongue. He's speaking in English on an American talk show. He said, by education, women are, uh, you know, encouraged to be more emotionally opened or conditioned to be more emotionally open. So, you know, he's not saying, oh, women are more emotional creatures. You know, he said, by education. So, you know, women are... Uh, you know, have been 
pressured, that's not quite the right word, to be better in touch with their emotions, and that allows their acting to show us something that you don't get in male actors playing male characters as much. James, you want to respond to any of that? I mean, there's there's a lot of things I want to kind of get some of your perspective in there. Yes, no, I, I agree with with Dan wholeheartedly on that point. And uh, I know going back to the Pauline Kale review, she singles out Karin uh, as the worst failure in the movie. But I think she's the most richly layered of the sisters because mm-hmm. we we see her go through so many different upheavals throughout the film. I mean, obviously nothing quite compares to, to dying on screen, but but her character is the one who seems to actually want to enact some sort of change in her life. Um, and also with with the the infamous scene of the the genital mutilation um i would just point out that the scene culminates after she breaks out in sweat she sort of reclines on her bed and smiles and then licks the blood off her lips in this very regal pose so so it it, it may have pained her at first but then she's she's basking in this this act of of uh, self mutilation um, as as sort of this, as Dan put it, a, a boss move, um, and and through the lens that I look at it in my my chapter, uh, through the Gothic and through Kristeva and a bit of uh, a Freudian lens, um, I think that there's also um, a, a very strong symbolic, um, I guess, like a, a, a symbolic um, movement towards the the maternal in that scene, as as hard as that might be to to, to wrap your head around. Um, because they're in their childhood home, and within the Gothic tradition, the home is often associated with the maternal um, as this space of both protection and entrapment. Um, and so the fact that she's mutilating herself in that way, and, and the way she reclines, it, it reminded me of a woman in labor, much like Agnes's death death pains when she's dying on the bed and she has her knees up. Um, so a lot of imagery in the film recalls the, the absent mother figure, but also this seeming obligation of the women to become mothers. Um, and it's it's pointed out that uh, Agnes is is um, sort of this spinster at the ripe old right. age of what thirty seven. Mm-hmm. Um, but but even the two other women, we we never really see them, or the two other sisters, um, Karen and Maria, we never quite see them in very maternal roles. Um, I think Maria is the only one we really see interacting with with one of her children, uh, the, mm-hmm. the blonde haired daughter. Um, so I think that's that's also worth pointing out that. Uh, they're all wrapped up in their own uh, sort of posthumous negotiations with with the mother, the legacy of the mother figure. Um, but they, in turn, are each in their own ways um, either accepting or rejecting the the role of mother within the film. Um, and I'm reminded of the uh, backtracking a bit to uh, the scene between Maria and the doctor. When, when he's basically berating her and pointing out all of her flaws. And mm-hmm. I think he actually brings her over to a mirror so she can confront herself. Um, what struck me on this most recent viewing is, is her line of dialogue to him where she says, I have no need of pardon. So, so there's something very um, recalcitrant or resistant about these, these female characters in the film where even if they might be unsympathetic in many ways, uh, they're not necessarily seeking any type of uh forgiveness or or uh uh i guess kind of uh, they're, they're not actually trying to conform to any set of expectations that that might be placed upon them 
Right. Well, they're, they're not they're not currying the favor of their husbands in any way. They they are sort of, for better or worse, sufficient unto themselves. Exactly that, right. That, I mean, that scene ends with one of the most important lines you can point to in all of Bergman's cinema when it comes to all of these issues about Ingmar Bergman making movies with so many female characters. Because the doctor tells her, you know, you have changed since, you know, we, our affair was going on. And let me show you how. Yeah, he's trying so he, to put her in her place. Yeah, so and he's mansplaining her own physiognomy to her, right? <laughs> and, and why she has all these wrinkles, you know, and, and little lines appearing. And, and the thoughts in her head that caused those lines right, to appear. Her eyes darting back and forth, all of that, right? And... uh you know, and and she never gets upset. She's just she's just kind of no. Bemused. She keeps a smile. She's, she's like, okay, amused. Carry on. <laughs> and then at the yeah, end, yeah. she says, "I can't remember." I, mean, I couldn't say it in Swedish anyway. But what the subtitle says, I can't even remember that. But it's basically, she says, "You're just projecting yourself on yeah, me." Pretty yes. much, right? Yeah. <laughs> so and and he, you know, that's what he he's done in all these films, all these women are him and he's admitted it over and over and over again. And Mm -hmm. yeah, it almost feels to me like today, you know, today, unlike the seventies, you know, and I, I certainly really respect Pauline Kael. I mean, I've lost friends by defending Pauline Kael (laughs) to men who don't like Pauline Kael. Uh, And, and Constance Penley is also great, but, but today you you almost feel like the only feminist who could make these arguments would be TERFs. You know, trans-exclusive <laughs> radical mm-hmm. feminists, mm-hmm. women old who, school, right? Well, yeah. well no, women who think well, that there is like an essential biological core right, to the right. female, uh, and you know, just as no man, you know, uh, what they call what they wrongly, in my view, accuse or define as men, you know, just because a man says he's a woman doesn't mean he is, you know, right. which is what the TERFs say about mm-hmm. trans women. Uh, you know, they they have this very essentialist, biologically based notion of, you know, the gender binary. You got to have the parts, right? Right. 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 And, yeah. you know, and a lot of filmmakers, including Bergman, you know, said, I've always related to women more than men. Mm-hmm. And of course, that doesn't mean you can't criticize Bergman and strongly for the fact that, you know, you may relate to women, but you're still a, a man in a patriarchal society who's had your privilege your whole life. Well, but, did you did either of you get a chance to watch the supplemental feature of him and Erlen Josephson being interviewed? It's a, it's a, it's on the Cries and Whispers Blu-ray. Yeah. Yeah. And they're both almost like chuckling at the at the kind of uh, the way they sort of played and, and left behind the various women in their lives. You know, I mean, it, it's, it, you know, because they're a couple of charming older men who've lived a life and you, you, they're, they're likable figures just because of their career accomplishments. But it's like, and I've, I've made these kind of comments in various uh, podcast discussions about Bergman. It's like, you know, I can admire him and, and sort of sort of respect who he is and what he's done from a distance but man if you really were in his inner circle and part of his life uh, on the short end of the draw he's a real bastard you know uh, and, oh, yeah and he, yeah and it's like you know even even people like lee volman you know uh, who, who loved him and 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 shared important parts of their life 
they recognize just kind of what a flawed character he is to put it very mildly and that the real pain that he's inflicted by, by his selfish pursuits and, and all of that. So we don't need to rehash all of that, but yeah, uh, these are not actions without consequences. He, he, he really did make life difficult and broke some hearts along the right. way. And that's not really a badge of honor as much. But, as, but you know, that's true of yeah. Jean-Luc Godard. Oh, that's for sure. True yeah. of any, like, or not any, but you know, many a huge percentage <laughs> yes. of powerful males in any profession who, who ran with that privilege in an age where you could just run it and be unchecked and that's just what everybody else has to deal with right you know and i mean i think it's important now that you know like we're we're ce- celebrating you know Agnes varda mm-hmm. and you know and now we have a lot of women Filmmakers. Chantal Ackerman criterion set, right? Great box set. You know, I'm instantly mm-hmm. buying that one, and for sure. And you know, and uh, and Catherine Brier again, and Claire Denis. All these people I love. You know, I mean, we're finally going to get a a bo- extensive bodies of work by women that will stand next to Bergman's, mm-hmm. and you know, and the the Bergman films. You know, they have their flaws, and you know, like. Uh, you know, I would have hated to be. I mean, he wasn't just nasty to women; he was nasty to men. He apparently <laughs> like like stole actors away from Errol and Josephson. You know, mm-hmm, when mm-hmm. like you know, late in life when Josephson was going to direct a play for the uh, Royal National Theater in Stockholm, you know, he was like he got his actors, Josephson and Bergman said, "Oh, I've decided I want to direct a play, and I need all of your actors." Mm. And and they all just said, well, we'd rather work for Bergman than you. And <laughs> sure. so then Alan Josephson just had to like not make a fit or not direct a play that year. Yep. So he was, you know, he was horrible to a lot of people. But, but you know, I mean, I really am kind of assiduously against cancel culture because, you know, I mean, are we well, going to like? Well, yeah, you could not, run anybody through the sieve and say, "Oh, they they they're disqualified because of this or that." I mean that, and then you're 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 basically well, yeah. You know, you, right? you know, should we go to the that to the Vatican and paint over the Sistine <laughs> Chapel because yeah. Michelangelo slept with right. pubescent boys? You know, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, would you move out of your home if you found out the architect? You know, had sexually Some, assaulted someone right right you know i mean i think you have to separate the creation from the creator yeah. to some extent and well, you know but the films he leaves behind you know allow you to cut have a greater understanding of yeah especially bergman films like no one shows why men are screwed up better than bergman you know that's <laughs> very true there yeah. uh they're all screwed up you know and it has and you know men are screwed up for the same reason women are screwed up because of the patriarchy and you know obligatory uh gender binaries or a, an obligatory gender binary and compulsory heterosexuality yeah you know you look at all these films and it's like you know you can tell that you know poor uh johan and our the wolf would you know maybe actually be a happy man if he just realized he was bisexual and stuff <laughs> fight those demons That's right. uh you know the character of Nix in uh a lesson in love kind of an obscure character in an obscure film yeah you, know, you look at you know she uh, that character is basically a transgender man 
you know, mm-hmm. in a film in not, the early 1950s. You know, nobody else mm-hmm. was talking about these things. So, you know, so I find these films really interesting because, because you know, Bergman was really willing to deal with, you know, transgender characters, you know, queer characters. Well, just yeah, how he, screwed up, you know, you are by being forced to be a tough man when you don't really have a tough constitution, but still mm-hmm. that's expected of you. Well, he, he's, you know, to, to sum it up, he, he's one of the great film artists of the 20th century. There's just no arguing with that. James, we're running up against the clock. We've got like nine minutes before our recording time. I want to get and give you, cut you a generous swath to kind of, Share with us any other insights or, or nuggets uh, on, on Cries and Whispers before we run out of time. Uh, well, piggybacking off of, off of what Dan just said, and, and you as well, in terms of Bergman's um, complicated legacy as a director and, and a, a man, uh, I, I think it's important to draw attention to one of the penultimate scenes in the film when they are bas- basically dismissing Anna, uh, giving her until the end of the month to clear out her stuff. And in that moment, uh, it's really the class differences that supersede the gender differences, uh, because the way he arranges uh, the mise-en-scene in that moment, it's the the two wives seated beside their two husbands, and they are in lockstep mm-hmm. in terms of she's she's a sentimental servant who follows us around too closely and let her take something uh, of uh, Agnes's and then that that should do it. Um, so in that moment, you, you do see Bergman adding uh, another dimension to his work that it's it's not this film that's picking apart just the female characters. We have these other um, class considerations at play as well. Um, and I guess I also would point out the... Um, the the dream sequence that we didn't get to talking about oh, yeah. um, the dream there yeah. the, mm-hmm. exactly um, and and that really gets to the heart of uh, abjection in, in my my essay um, where abjection is often described as uh, death infecting life and I think that's just the perfect description for that moment where Agnes is is um, revived and trying to seek a connection with with her sisters and none of them will will give her any any comfort. Um, and I, I think that also is is a moment in which she is, in some liminal sense, connecting with the dead mother as well, uh, the, the mother who she's yearned for uh, since her childhood, yearned for a kind of connection. So in death, they are somewhat unified. Um, but I also think it, it's very revealing in that moment to look at um, Maria and uh, Karin and the flaws, their, their flaws, which are really thrown into contrast uh, in how they deal with with the the undead Agnes uh, right that she's we we see um, Maria who's the one who's always professing to care about her and she's the one who withdraws and runs from the room and uh, I only caught it on this more, most recent viewing but Karen actually says um, I would I would help you perhaps if I loved you <laughs> so so like all these secrets are coming coming out these unspoken truths um, of of the sisterly bonds or lack thereof. Um, so I, I find that that uh, moment, even though we're meant to interpret it, I suppose, as, as a dream, um, there, there's something about it that's the most um, illuminating, I think, uh, even though it is on his vantage point as the servant. Um, but but there's something about that very uncanny, surreal um, tableau where we really see as as. Uh, Karen says earlier, it's a tissue of lies, right? That tissue of lies falls away in that moment, and we see their true colors. Um, so I, I, that that just uh, is is of a particular note uh, within my chapter, looking at the abjects and how people are usually 
both attracted to the abject, but also repulsed by it. And in that moment, as this living corpse, um, Agnes is is the abject embodied. That's right on the screen behind you there, David. Uh, what's he say? Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Eerie. You're my, very eerie. I've got my little TV running off to the side there for uh, listeners' sake there. But, you know, just as we kind of really do run down to our last couple minutes, this was a this was a commercial comeback for Bergman. He'd kind of fallen out of favor. He had to resort to Roger Corman's distribution company. I think I called it American International. It was like New World Pictures at this point. So, um, you know, he'd, he'd kind of fallen out of favor. This was a big comeback. What is your really quick take? Is Why did this relaunch Bergman into such prominence? as the uh, you know one of the, the elite art house directors after some of his previous films had kind of you know failed to click with the broader audiences real quick what are your thoughts uh, on that? well I'm actually of a view that that the films all immediately preceding this with the, the exception of the one right before this called the, the touch. touch yeah which is basically an interesting failure. But all the other ones leading up to this, to me, those are his greatest achievements. You know, mm-hmm. Persona, Hour of the Wolf, Shame, uh, and a passion, passion of Anna. Yeah, yeah, or as it should correctly be called, yeah. just yeah. a passion. A passion. I guess. Mm-hmm. This, uh, right. just you know, they added of Anna, which kind of might makes the title not make as much sense. Right. But uh, you know, those were way you know decades ahead of their time. Mm-hmm. And people are finally just getting around to those now and realizing, oh my God, I'd heard these were mediocre, but these are like amazing yeah. films. Uh, so, but I think, you know, they were just kind of almost too high modernist for people in a way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he was refusing to connect the dots. You know, he was playing all sorts of metacinematic games with yeah. his the actors and out of character talking about the movie that they're in right <laughs> right and so in a way i think the things that i love about cries and whispers are not the reason it succeeded the reason it succeeded were the things that you're kind of like well okay you know i think in some ways it's not high modernism it's more a throwback to like yeah. late 19th century modernism you know yeah. and, mm-hmm. and strindberg and the old dark house in the middle of the night. So I think people could relate to that more and it it was more familiar to them, you know, like it was almost marketed like it was a horror film and, and like the silence, which was probably the last Bergman film to make a lot of money before this one. You know, they, both of them basically are kind of horror films or ghost stories without ghosts, you know, Mm -hmm. or like ghosts Mm -hmm. in the supernatural sense. Yeah, and so you could you could enjoy them on on that wavelength, which it was not as easy to do with with say the late sixties films that were increasingly getting smaller and smaller audiences, and with Cries and Whispers, he literally had to put his own money into it. He could not get funding for that film, and the actors right. uh, uh, deferred their salary, you know, to get right. paid. Mm-hmm. All right, James. I'll give you the last word on this before our clock runs out. <laughs> oh, the, the pressure! The pressure. I, well, I, I would, I would uh, endorse Dan's Dan's yeah. uh, speculation about why it found success, and then also add on to it uh, just the the sheer opulence of it visually. Right, it won the, the best uh, cinematography award, yeah. uh, and never underestimate the appeal of a costume drama. Um, right at, at this time, we have um, uh, women in love, and it's a uh, precedes. Uh, uh, picnic at Hanging Rock. So we, we have the appeal of these 
heritage films, for lack of a better word. Yeah. Um, and and I really think that's that's something that makes it, as Dan said, readily accessible to an audience that might not necessarily embrace uh, an international film. Right? It's it's that that cursory glance at the poster or the the advertisement in the newspaper, and you see, you think you can wrap your head around what it is. Uh, but of course, it is it's so much more than any one genre or category. All right. Well, the seconds are ticking down. Like listeners, we really do have a very hard close here based on the the app that we're using to record it so dan and james what a wonderful conversation i wish we could kind of pad things out a little bit more but it's been great i look forward to uh, future interactions with you i definitely want to check out that book even if i have to pay library prices for it so when do you think it'll be ready uh, for publication hopefully sometime next year uh you know it's just a gigantic undertaking but, okay. but we already are talking about a paperback edition that will be affordable. So. Okay, we got to go now. It's about to click off. So okay. thanks, guys. Thank Good you, night. David. <laughs> thanks. Well, hello again. This is David, uh, just recording a wrap-up segment as we bring this episode to a close. I apologize for having to make such a drastic uh, kind of exit from the conversation I was having with James and Dan, but uh, we were using a website, uh, had been a free service, found out just as we were about to start recording that they had imposed a very strict time limit on how many minutes we could record. And as the episode was going on, I was kind of watching that clock, and I finally saw the last couple minutes and then even seconds ticking down, and I knew that we we had to get out of there before we just kind of, you know, the recording cut off, or they would force me to upgrade to a, a higher level of a, a paid plan in order to retrieve the recording. So, <laughs> setting all that aside, I just want to say my next episode will be on Kostigavris' State of Siege, which was released, I think, on December 30th, 1972, and it will indeed bring Season 4 of Criterion Reflections to a close. I know that in the past three seasons, I've done kind of a year-end episode where I talk about all the short films and supplemental features that were released on Criterion Discs during the year under review. I'm going to kind of skip that this year just to kind of... For the sake of expediency, I guess you could say, I am kind of ready to be done with season four and perhaps do a little bit of introspection and reformatting of this podcast, perhaps working more with short form video. As many of you know, I'm sure I've been doing a lot of work on TikTok and doing little mini film reviews. And I think for some of the 1973 titles that I have in my queue, that would be an appropriate uh, way to kind of cover them and keep things moving a little bit more quickly than they have as I've extended this past season over the course of at least three years, maybe even longer than that if I was to go back and figure out when I actually started and my 1972 coverage. But uh, anyways, I've got one more episode left to go before I do my kind of wrap-ups for the whole project there. And so uh, look forward to having that conversation and giving you all something to listen to. Thanks for your ongoing support and feedback. And uh, yeah, wish you all the best as we will get back to you hopefully fairly soon with a look at Costa Gavras's State of Siege and bring us to the end of our 1972 coverage of the Criterion Collection. Until then, take care, be well, and bye-bye.